Hey, I'm Mike Cruz, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. All right, so I'm excited to welcome on Jeff Kahn. He's the CEO and co-founder of Rive Science. I actually got to meet Jeff uh, a couple years ago, and we've become friends since uh, at a CEO offsite. And when people say, uh, you know, founders are obsessed with things, I don't think there's a, that's more true than like Jeff and sleep. Like I first met him, he was talking about sleep at our happy hour where he was telling everyone that you shouldn't be drinking and then continue to talk about sleep like the entire weekend. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, uh, Rise Science, Jeff's company, analyzes your sleep uh, data using sleep science, helps you become a better sleeper. And we've been talking about Rise Science within Invisible for the longest time. I find it to be super fascinating. But welcome, Jeff, to the Founders Forward. Yeah, it's awesome to be here, Mike. It's uh, I'm glad that you're doing this and super excited to have a conversation. And uh, as you say, I'm definitely obsessed about the topic. And if I can spread the gospel in any way and, and help someone slightly that's a huge win for me. So thanks you know, for hosting. I, yeah, of course. I feel like, you know, sometimes the founders and you're doing like, I don't know, enterprise SaaS or something, right? Like, you know, you talk to the top founder, by the way, they're excited by it. They're clearly ambitious. Uh, but like, you don't want to ask them all these questions. But I feel like with you, it's just like, you're happy to talk to anyone at any time about sleep. Do you ever get tired of talking about sleep or like, you just love it that much? Uh. I mean, so for me, it's been about a 10-year journey. So, you know, it's funny, like we had Q3 was amazing for us, but all the quarters before that, pretty pretty, pretty hard, you know, slog building things, uh, iterating. Yeah. But it's like, oh, that happened in 12 weeks, but it's been like a 10-year journey to get there. And not all, you know, company building, but this obsession with sleep started 10 years ago. And so I guess the short answer to your question is... Um, I still find energy from it this morning. In fact, like I was launching an oil and gas construction company this morning at 10 a.m. And it was to improve the safety of their people in the field. And, you know, there are 20 people on the call. None of them have ever heard about really like detailed, you know, approach to sleep. And I just get so much energy from doing that. And it's not necessarily like Nick, who runs customer success and sales for us, was like, hey, how'd it feel? Thanks for jumping on and launching them. I was like, yeah, I just had a ton of fun. Like, I still get energy yeah. from it every day. Now, if you were to ask my wife, like, <laughs> she does not like it. She is very tired of it. She does not share my obsession. She's really serious and disciplined about sleep, but she does not want to hear another conversation because she's been on the outside, like, you know, hearing all of these uh, conversations over the years. So, so what, so what anyway, hobbies do you have outside yeah. of sleep then? Oh, I mean, it used to be more far ranging, but I, I, you know, now things are kind of boring. So I work on sleep most of the day. I go home, I get to to be with my 18 month old daughter and my wife. So I like, spend a lot of time with them. And I'd say the probably only thing outside of that, that I'm doing right now is just still finding a ton of joy from cooking. I don't know. I find it super therapeutic. Not everyone does, but just like getting my headspace off of work, using my hands, you know, cooking something that I can enjoy. So that's been the thing I've been Dude, getting That's into. like been my biggest outlet as well since probably for the past four or five years now has been really getting into cooking because it's, yeah, it's actually more art than science. And you could use your hands, like you said. And like yesterday I had a long day and I was just like, 
I didn't care that I went to go peel a bunch of sweet potatoes. My brothers even make fun of me because I mentioned sweet potatoes in the last podcast, but my wife is, is pregnant with our first and we've been doing a lot of, she's been loving sweet potatoes. So that's been like the oh, theme of, of every show. So I've got to send you this sweet potato. Uh, it's this super interesting sweet potato, like caramelized recipe that you just like bake the crap out of the sweet potatoes and they're with like, and then you saute them after they're all caramelized and miso butter. And there it's we go. Phenomenal. So and I'll send that your way after this, Mike. There we go. So you mentioned 10 year journey. How, so you're from Southern California. Uh, you went yeah. to school in Chicago at, at Northwestern. How did you end up getting involved with sleep? Yeah, I mean, so it was, you know, about 10 years ago, I was doing my undergrad in, in engineering. And so if there's anyone listening to the show that had friends that were engineers, uh, you definitely know that they're usually up late at night working on problem sets and then up early in the morning. And so uh, I was doing that with my now co-founder, Leon, and um, we were good friends in, in undergrad. And just waking up in the morning was like the worst part of our day. And then we would go through our whole day and still feel crappy, like struggling to stay awake, pounding caffeine, trying to figure out like why is it that we're going through our days just absolutely exhausted and feeling crappy. And I don't know, I thought at first maybe there's something wrong with me. Like, who knows? There's just something wrong. But as I started to, to kind of figure out what was going on and, and sort of university is a great time to just explore stuff. So started to read a lot of peer-reviewed sleep science literature and started to realize, oh my God, like I'm not the only person that's tired. Almost 75% of adults in the developed world are tired multiple times a week. Like there's a lot of people out there that are tired. And then just peeling all the onion back to realize like, and guess what? The root cause is pretty simple. People aren't sleeping enough. That was just sort of a moment for me where I started to put those two things together. And then sort of the third was there were a bunch of wearables out at the time and there still are. And the, the big issue is if you go and do user research and, and talk to people that are using wearables, they'll say, yeah, this stuff's really interesting. I can see my sleep data last night, but like, I'm still tired. I don't know what to do about this. And so that's when we, you know, Leon and I got very interested in, well, how do we take all this information and make it useful for people? and apply some best practices from behavioral science. And so we ended up sort of getting so deep into this that we published a paper back in 2012, 13, if I remember the years right, showing that we could take data from wearables and output these custom sleep schedules and people actually slept more. And so that was sort of the first moment where it was like, huh, like this actually could work. There's maybe something here. And and then that led to our school's football team being interested. And kind of the first version of the business was uh, doing this for for professional athletic teams in the U.S. So that was a whole sort of phase one of the journey. And, and phase two has been taking all of that learning from elite athletics and, and ultimately, uh, and we can go into kind of why we've made this transition, but taking all of that insight and, and inspiration and, and saying, well, how do we build a consumer experience that anyone can use? And then ultimately kind of finding product market fit again uh, in, in, in that space. So both, I feel like I've had almost like two startups and the first one just totally pulled into uh, by accident. I wasn't expecting yeah. to be an entrepreneur. And um, yeah. it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I was going to say, because like, you know, if you look at, I don't know, a company like Tesla, right? Tesla started with the the model, you know, or sorry, the Roadster, right? Like the best car because they need to prove it out and blah, blah, blah. And then we'll have the Model 3. Uh, you guys are working with like the Roadsters of the world, like professional athletes of NFL teams and, and yeah. collegiate sporting teams. But you're saying that you actually 
there was no ambition to, or maybe not ambition is not the right word, but there was no plan to be like, okay, then we're going to create a consumer app that Mike can go use. I mean, the, the beginning of this was this realization that, and actually the reason I ended up going to school in Chicago is, is that I wanted to figure out and I wanted to put a degree together to figure out how to fix the healthcare system problem. So I, I grew up in Southern California. My mom is a social worker. My grandfather is a psychiatrist. So sort of very in the weeds of like, and I've got a lot of mental health issues in my family uh, that we can go into later. But I was very close to this idea that if you don't have your health, you just don't have anything else. Like it's mm-hmm. so essential. I think we realized now with COVID. And then the second thing that I was sort of keen on early was any interaction with the healthcare system is terrible. And so I wanted to figure out how to go and solve that at some systemic level. That's which is why I went to go to school and sort of along the way, I ended up finding sleep, but realizing that like sleep is really the foundation, this foundational lever that we all have. That is what I would argue the most effective lever that we have in our control more so than nutrition, more so than meditation, more so than physical activity that we all do every day, that if we just tweak slightly, we can have just massive impact for how long we're going to live, how well we're going to live. And so sort of as I mentioned here, I set up all the ways we might affect quality adjusted life years, you know, so area under the curve and you look at quality of life on the y-axis, the number of days on the x-axis, and you then integrate that and get the area under the curve, like changing the sleep of the world felt like the thing that would have the biggest impact on, you know, quality adjusted life years or sort of human experience. And so that, that kind of, uh, really big kind of theoretical thinking just gave me and gave, gave Leon sort of the gusto to say, well, no one's really solved this yet. There's a lot of good tracking, but no one's really solved how to help people get more sleep and do it in a way that's sustainable. And so that's what kind of led us on to this thing. The vision was always, hey, we want to impact this at scale. And actually, the reason why we ended up going away from the the sort of roadsters and working with professional athletic teams was ultimately, and for everyone that's listening, how hard building any business is, whether it's with elite athletics, whether it's uh, what you're building with Visible, like whatever business it is, whether you're trying to find product market fit or scaling, this stuff just takes a ton of heart and soul, takes a ton of energy, like it's a hard job, like compared to people just in the regular workforce, like being a founder is really, really hard. And so I just remember one sales cycle in like 2017 talking to them and I was just like, look, I'm just not that happy doing this work anymore. Like it's important and we have this great business and we're working with the best names in pro sport. But I, I just, I'm not behind building a product in the company where we're just serving 10, 15,000 pro athletes. And so that's sort of what led us to go and, and do a seed round of fundraising to say, let's go do this again, but build a consumer product that anyone can use. Uh, Did you have our product at the time? So when you raised that seed round, was it like, we, we know what this is going to be? Or was it, we're experts in sleep. Here's what we've done. And we want to go take this money and build a prototype for the consumer market. So it was, I mean, we, the product, yes, we, we had built a product. We had, built sort of multiple iterations for professional athletics. So, I mean, we had an enterprise product that uh, it was a consumer app for the players that basically had the sleep schedule on it. We had, we outsourced a, a under mattress sensing uh, sleep sensor from Finland that literally had a 3G cell phone chip in there and we get HRV data and super accurate clinical data. And like, and, and then we'd have the performance dashboard for the staff, uh, for the performance staff to fine tune workouts and then we'd often get uh, outcome data from the teams. So basically have the full cycle of how to affect someone's output. 
And that was super valuable to help us learn how, when we have all this great data, how can we actually make an impact? Um, and so we, we did a ton of tinkering and learning and, and sort of R&D in that phase. And when we went to go do the seed round, it was much more, hey, we want to take what we've done and, and not charge you know, thousands of dollars a year for a subscription. How do we make this like the price of a cup of coffee a month and get rid of a lot of the complexities and, and things that don't matter? And our, our sort of core insight was people don't actually care about sleep. People care about how they're feeling during the day. Yep. And so how do we make the feedback loop between your sleep and your energy immediate? And that's sort of what, what we've started to see in athletics. And we've, I think, started to really crack on the, on the consumer side. We had a lot of the core insight because we were, like you said, we were obsessed. Like I've personally coached hundreds of pro athletes. I've published research in the field. I've taken one-on-one independent studies with some of the top sleep scientists. I'm like deep in the field, practicing this, seeing the research sort of at the center of all of it. And so we had a ton of insight and there was basically no question that our seed investors could ask around sleep that like we didn't have an, a, you know, an informed opinion on. One of our seed investors led the seed round in Fitbit. So like they knew a lot about sleep, yeah. but I think what they saw in our team and, and I try and tell entrepreneurs this now is like, I think that what they saw in the team was like, this is something we care so deeply about that and we know so well like we didn't get into this because it's a good business opportunity yeah founder you know, market fit was like through the roof yeah we sort of so founder market fit was high and we sort of had to figure out how do we back into and get lucky frankly uh, to see if there's market opportunity now we the i think the the you know tailwinds have always been there for sleep um and now it's kind of gone through the roof whoops uh, you know billion dollar valuation or has raised a massive round uh, Strava just raised another big round. So like sort of this quantified self-movement is truly going mainstream. Like it's not just this like fringe niche thing anymore, uh, which has been helping us a lot. But that being said, it wasn't that like every investor was jumping out of their seat to invest in this. Yeah, It was, you know, 40 no's before we got one yes. And fundraising is just incredibly hard and a topic we can go go, go deep into. Into the, the science of, of sleep itself, maybe just for a second. I think this is super helpful sure. uh, for, for founders to think through. A big part of, of, from what I feel, using the Rise app, and I think I saw you give a presentation uh, at one point that like blew my mind, which was, uh, I'll, I'll let you quote that exact data because you'll know it, but sure. if you have this uh, few hours of sleep, it's basically you're operating uh, your day as if you were at the legal limit of, of alcohol because your reaction time is lower. And so sleep debt mm-hmm. seems to be a pinnacle role of like sleep science. Is that right? Yeah. I'll give the, for those listening, sort of the uh, hundred year history of sleep science. I'll try and do it in like five, six minutes. And (laughs) forgive me if you're upset for me getting on a teaching pedestal, but I think you'll at least come away with this with something valuable and you'll be able to apply it to your own life. Um, So yes, first off, there's been a hundred years of sleep science. So the first sleep around a hundred years, the first sleep lab ever opened at University of Chicago. So sleep, unlike meditation, nutrition, sort of fuzzier wellness categories, like there's been a hundred, close to a hundred years of like hard science that's been done. So we actually know a lot. There's still a lot we don't know. I mean, we, there, but, but we know a lot. And so what we've learned is basically how you sleep affects every aspect of your functioning. So that's sort of thing one. So it's not like sleep only affects three-point percentage. Yes, it does affect three-point percentage. It's not like sleep only affects reaction time or immunity or your emotional well-being like anything that you can think of 
uh, I would be hard. I, it's more likely that anything you can think of, we will be able to find peer-reviewed evidence where some researcher has already basically tweaked the amount of sleep people are getting and then studied how it affected that outcome. And so like there's hundreds of those for the last hundred years that people have done. And things like you wouldn't even realize, like literally your the uh, charism, we're actually doing this, we're, we're going to carry out a study with a guy that, that focuses on leadership, but like the amount of sleep you get affects how inspirational your direct reports think you are. Yeah. Like you'd never yeah. think that, right? You'd never think that your sleep is like directly affecting how if you're running a small company, how people, how charismatic you are. Um, it affects your, how abusive you are to others. It affects your irritability, but basically anything mentally, physically, or, or emotionally sleep is going to have a big impact on. And so I think that's the part that people know and they're like nodding their heads around. And then when I say that these next two things, this is where I think people are really like, really, that's how it works. But yes, it is how it works. So the question is like, okay, so we know all the benefits of sleep. How do you get those benefits? And there's so much marketing and hype and misinformation about how to get those benefits. But just hear me out for a second. There's like stuff about REM sleep out there and deep sleep and temperature regulation and supplements and, you know, mattress quality and having this foam versus that foam and this pillow versus that pillow and, and doing a sleep story before you go to bed and like, okay, so is any of that stuff going to give you the benefits of sleep that we all know are there that, you know, hundred years of research has borne out? And the way to answer that question is just with what's called the two-factor model of sleep and wake regulation. So this is a sort of the, what I would call the two laws of sleep. Uh, there's actually, if you want to get fancy, there's actually a third law that has to do with these, but really it's these two laws. Um, and really what these laws tell us is basically these are the, 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 the levers that if you change, you'll get the benefit. If you don't change, the data would suggest you don't get the benefit. So the first law and by far the most important one is what you just mentioned, sleep debt. And the way that this works is that everyone has a specific amount of sleep they need. It's actually a genetically determined uh, amount. It, unless you're like at the, you're training at a very, very extreme level, uh, this need does not change day over day. It stays pretty stagnant. And roughly speaking, the average is eight hours and 15 minutes with a 35 minute standard deviation. So that's what we know about this. So do you need eight hours of sleep? The answer is, well, the average is eight hours and 15. And no, you probably need somewhere between seven and a half and, and nine, but like everyone's different. Mm -hmm. Now let's just assume that you need eight and you don't get that amount. You get seven and a half. You actually build up, uh, let's say it's seven and a half at eight. You'd build up about 30 minutes of sleep debt. Now, not exactly. It's more complicated than that, but roughly just speaking, you build up 30 minutes of sleep debt. And that those minutes build up over the last two weeks. So if I wanna know how sleep deprived you are today, we're actually looking at the last two weeks. There's some studies that suggest it's actually a little bit longer in our research uh, with, with NFL and the NBA and, and with big you know, Fortune 500 teams. When we study performance, it, it, we, we really just see the biggest impact in the last two weeks. Um, and so it's this number that is going to tell you how you're gonna do that day. Not your REM sleep, not your deep sleep, not how much you slept last night, all that stuff has very little bearing on how you're likely to feel. Even how, when you wake up, I think there's this, uh, another myth uh, along with this that like, 
when you wake up in the morning, you should feel amazing and you should have your hands up in the air and you should be smiling because uh, that's what Simmons and Serta want you to believe that if you just buy our mattress, that's how you'll feel when you wake up. That's just not true. There is, there, there's very little correlation with how you feel during sleep inertia when you wake up and actually your performance and, and how you'll feel the rest of the day. So sleep dead is this core number. Now, what makes it really interesting is that if you go from, and this is your number of like, you know, just high level stat. So if you go from eight hours of sleep, let's just assume that you, on average, people need a little over eight, but let's say you go from eight to seven just for a week. What happens? What, like, does that even matter? Because I think the real question of sleep is like, what's the right trade-off? Yeah, we all know we need more sleep, but what's the right trade-off? And what's the right trade-off for you, given what you have coming up? And so if you go from eight to seven for a week, at the end of that week, your f- focusing ability will be like someone who's at the legal limit for alcohol. So not that like your emotions are going to be screwed up that way, but right. like you're literally the number of lapses that you have from a brain standpoint, from a neurocognitive, the scientific term is neurocognitive vigilance, basically how alert and active your brain is and how focused it is, that's gonna be like someone who's at the legal limit for alcohol. So that's how impaired you are. Not after like fully depriving yourself of sleep, not after getting like four hours a night for, for a week. We're talking going from eight to seven for a week. And so I think that's what people miss is that you're, you can have this massive change in outcome, something like focus, which kind of underpins everything. And again, it's not just focus, it's your immune system, it's your metabolic health, it's your emotional health. Just after one week, that's happening. Give you a sense on immunity about if you go do the same thing from eight to seven hours. If I were to, to give you, a, put the common cold up into your nostril and expose you to like a common rhinovirus, you're 300% more likely to catch the common cold. So, I mean, just to give you a sense of like how systemic this is, this is like cutting off oxygen and like, of course you're going to die if we cut off oxygen long enough. Sleep is the same way. We were not designed to go without a a very little amount of sleep. We go into a fight or flight response evolutionarily. And so, uh, so, so sort of back to this idea of, of sleep debt, you know, hopefully at this point you might be listening and you're thinking like, okay, Jeff, like I got this thing called sleep debt. I, okay, I buy in that it's this genetic thing. I buy in that it builds up. That kind of makes sense to me. Um, but I don't know. I get like seven hours of sleep or I get six hours and 45 and like, I feel fine. I, I, like I'm doing all right. Mm-hmm. And researchers have looked at this because what they want to know is how is it that most, and by the way, the average sleep in the population is a bit over six hours. Um, so how is it that the developed world on average is walking around cognitively drunk, yet people think they're just fine. Like where's the Mm -hmm. mismatch coming from? And so if you basically take people and you survey their subjective sleepiness, what you'll find is basically after just two to three days of even getting four or six hours, the how sleepy you feel sort of levels off, you get used to it. So if you go and get four hours for the next three nights, I would expect that you're each day, you're going to be like, yep, Jeff, I'm more tired. I'm more tired. I'm more tired. Basically days three through 14, you're going to not feel any sleepiness difference. Yet if I were to measure your objective focus, it just continues to deteriorate and get worse in relation to how much sleep debt you're having because you're building up that sleep debt. So your subjective sleepiness is probably the only thing about you that does not change with respect to sleep debt. (laughs) Your subjective sleepiness, basically, uh, sort of your brain is tricking you into think into thinking that you're better off than you are. Now, the good news to this is, look, most of you, if your founders are performing at a high level, so, you know, if you've got a lot of sleep debt built up and you're getting five, six hours a night and you're skating by, 
think about how much better you could be. Like going yeah. literally, like you might be at twice the legal limit of alcohol in terms of focus and you're still getting a bunch of stuff done. Imagine what you'll be able to do when you're thinking clearly and you're, you know, at, at your peak. So that's law one, uh, sleep debt, hard to be aware of, but if you can track it, this is like, should be, I believe the single KPI and single most important KPI for your own health and your own performance. The second uh, is something called circadian rhythms. And maybe you've heard of this, uh, you've heard of this before, likely you have. Um, when I first heard about this concept, I was like, well, this seems hokey. Like we have a biological rhythm like that, that's kind of BS. Uh, but ultimately what I found is yes, this is a field called chronobiology. It's been around since the 1700s, studying basically the internal clocks, biological clocks of sort of living things, plants, people, animals. Um, and ult the, the sort of high level here is you actually have a part in the brain that's uh, controlling all the cells in your body and organ systems, basically when to be active and alert and when not to be. And so as a result of that sort of on and off sort of uh, activity and recovery state, uh, we actually have these different times when we should be performing and different times when we're just not as performant. So like if you're in the early afternoon, like Mike, it is for you, like you might be in your dip. I don't know what Rise is telling you, but if you're in your dip, you're going to feel it. And um, that's not a food-based thing. It's actually a circadian rhythm, uh, biologically controlled thing. Um, and so what this means is you need to be tuned in to when you're going to be at your peak performance and when you're not, and then be able to plan your day you know, accordingly. Uh, so anyway, so that's the high level on the second law. And, and My dip is at its lowest at 1.30. So we have an okay. hour and a half to wrap this up before I, I'm just a terrible uh, host. <laughs> no wonder you're such a bad host right now, Mike. You're in your dip. No, but you can still be performing well, even if you're in yes. a dip. It's not something to freak out okay, about. Okay, so one is sleep debt, two is yeah. circadian rhythm. Yep. And if you know those two things, like that is how you get the benefits of sleep. There's no, you know, your brain is self-optimizing REM and deep. So like, don't try and hack, like you shouldn't be trying to hack sleep. We know a lot of what works. And so that should immediately ring alarm bells if someone is trying to sort of hack sleep this, when you're trying to build a rocket, you don't, you know, hack it together. You, mm -hmm. There's rocket science. Like you, you go to the rocket science, you actually know the formulas and rocket science is very predictable. Sleep is the same way. There's a lot of science. We know exactly how it works. I go to the sleep science, there's formulas, like we know how this stuff works. And so yeah, there's still stuff we're figuring out, but this isn't something you hack together. And so unfortunately there is a lot of misinformation on the topic, but the good news is there's a lot of really good academic literature that uh, is there to be discovered and to hopefully make it out into the masses. So does REM sleep matter? Yes. I mean, that's like, you know, saying like, does cellular respiration matter? Like, yeah, 100% REM sleep matters. Is it something that you should be thinking about as like a person trying to use your sleep to live a better life? In my opinion, not at all. You should just not consider it, not think about it. Two primary reasons. The first reason is, Actually, maybe three. The first is you should be focused on things that you can control. Changing your REM sleep materially is not really something that that so far there's good consensus scientific evidence on how to do um, in terms of getting more of it. The second thing is let's even assume theoretically that you could change it. The question is like, is that a good thing? Mm -hmm. So then the answer is, well, we actually don't know. Like, yeah, REM sleep is associated with all sorts of positive benefits, but so is light sleep. So is deep sleep. So if you're getting more REM by default, that means you're going to get more light and, and or you're going to get less light sleep and less deep sleep. 
The third piece that sort of worries me about this, the, this notion of trying to optimize for REM and deep sleep is that um, your brain is automatically adjusting this. So for example, if you cut your sleep short tonight and you get four hours of sleep uh, tonight, the next night, your brain is actually going to prioritize different uh, what's called sleep architecture. So it's going to prioritize those different stages based on what's been done. And there's actually some fascinating work with Olympic sprinters showing that even depending on their workout, your brain is actually going to change what it's doing. And so it is this responsive system and your sleep is, it's very complex. And so it's not, it's not just as simple as like get more REM or get more deep. And then the other side of this is, and this is one of the areas where we don't really know, REM, deep, the different stages, like that's just a, that's a descriptive framework. It was not designed to be a predictive framework. So all that was meant to do is, and um, Jamie Zeitzer, who's an awesome sleep scientist over at Stanford, was telling me the story, and I might get a bunch of this wrong, but um, he was telling me the story of, of his mentor, Dr. Dement, who passed away recently, who's you know, one of the fathers of sleep medicine and really a pioneer in the field. And he said, at a, he was talking about the meeting, I think it was in the 50s, I want to say, when they were coming up with the different stages of sleep. And it was all the scientists from all the different countries. And like the U.S. scientists wanted like four stages and the Germans wanted 10 stages and the Italians <laughs> wanted seven stages. And everyone ultimately ended up agreeing on like, well, here's what we're going to try and do. And if you look at the gold standard today, it's still like a set of recommendations where a human goes through and based on those recommendations, looks at your sleep every 30 seconds and looks at all these brainwaves and then assigns based on that 30 second epic, they say, well, based on the recommendations and based on what we're seeing in the brainwaves, here's what we think it is. Now, algorithms can get pretty it's systematic. It's pretty good. But even human reviewers at an epic by epic level, I think that the inter sort of like reviewer agreement is still something like in the 80% range. So then the fact that we think that our devices can give us an accurate estimation of what's happening in our brain is also just, again, another just to make this argument even shakier is sort of another uh, issue with that. Again, even if the devices could report accurately, which, you know, some of them are, are okay and they're getting better at, it's like, well, what's the whole purpose of this anyway? The brain is self-optimizing the stages and we just want to let the brain do its thing. That's, I think we don't know enough to know about exactly what's happening during sleep at a molecular level, where like, that's the stuff that we're still trying to figure out. And so until then, I sort of take the opinion of like, let's let the brain do what it does best and put it in the best possible condition to do what it naturally is supposed to do. And let's not mess with it. So, so that's so, my tirade on that. It's a great one. I love it. It simplifies sleep quite a bit when you really kind of break it down, right? It's just like, I need to sleep and, and that's kind of it. I need to get so, my sleep need. And I need so so sleep then why do I need yeah. RISE then, right? If, if devices don't really matter or maybe they're not as accurate, what is RISE doing for me then uh, that, that I just can't do myself? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, the first thing is like figuring out your sleep needs pain. So we have a bunch of predictive algorithms that figure that out for you. So you give us access to your health kit data or your wearable data and we tell you that. And then we can also tell you your sleep debt right away. There's a lot of super smart teams that have been working on uh, this problem of trying to help people with their sleep. And I think the, the obvious answer is to like get really good at tracking and make that more seamless. Like if we could just track sleep in the background, um, that that would be the holy grail. And I think we've gotten better at that over time. I mean, Fitbit has a ton of penetration. Uh, Whoop is doing an amazing job. Aura is doing an amazing job there. And folks are getting really good at tracking. 
when it comes to then like what people want. And so when you think, you know, we do a lot of jobs to be done research. Uh, and this is sort of an insight we had early on is that like, yeah, people don't care about sleep. Like I actually want to sleep less if I can. What I do care about is how am I a better person during the next day? How do I extend my longevity on the planet? How do I connect more closely with the people around me? How, how can I be more present? And if you care about those things and, and closing that feedback loop, I think the, the insight that we've seen with athletes and the unlock we've seen on the, on the sort of uh, past couple of years has been, how do we make the feedback loop between your sleep and your energy immediate and do it in a way that's scientifically rigorous? Um, and I think the more that we can get do that, the, the better off. So that's where sleep debt comes in and we have a bunch of fancy algorithms and data science happening behind the scenes there. And, and then the same thing with our circadian rhythm predictions. Um, and then we can also do things like tell you when. So I, most people have heard of melatonin at this point. Most people have probably taken it. Uh, fun fact that we can get into later, melatonin actually doesn't work uh, when you take it in pill form. We can talk about what exactly <laughs> that means in a second if you want. But what does work is your brain's naturally produced melatonin. Again, going with this notion of like natural sleep, Matt Walker talks about this sort of naturalistic sleep. It's one of the areas I think we do agree on um, that how do you promote what's already happening naturally? And so we can actually predict uh, when your brain is going to be releasing melatonin. So sort of the best time for you to be sleeping. So these things are changing based on your sleep schedule, light exposure, and just that would be a ton of spreadsheets and a ton of math to figure out. And so we make that obviously super easy and then, you know, bring in data from devices or from your, uh, from your accelerometer gyroscope data to, to track your sleep in the background uh, if, if you don't have a device. And what we're finding is like those things are really powerful for people. I love it. I think for me as a user of Rise, the circadian rhythm piece has been like the biggest changer for me. I want to use my peak performance when I'm at work, uh, leading a team or trying to solve a complex problem. And my dips, I started to schedule around working out, right? Because I don't need my peak performance to go ride the bike or go on a run. I'm not trying to train for anything. So I'll use that time to go and do something else for myself. So that's been like the biggest game changer. It's like, and, and for me, I've even optimized my schedule the past couple of months where I block out in my calendar, like based on my circadian rhythm, like where I'm most productive. So in the morning for me, I'm not doing demos of visible. I am like working on complex, hard things because I can do a demo, no pun intended, in my sleep. Uh, yeah, or you can do this for <laughs> same thing. You can do this in your sleep. Like we can yeah. have a fun conversation and it doesn't need to be during a peak. Yeah. Okay. So that was awesome. I have a couple questions just about uh, some of the things we, we talked about. You mentioned, yeah. you mentioned you personally coach athletes. Like, Yes. Can you share? I literally like call up on the phone, like Bill Belichick calling my cell phone one day, like, okay, that, you know, or like. Did he mumble or was he talking coherently when he called you? No, he was coherent. Yeah. I didn't think (laughs) I was like, what's this number from, you know, Foxborough or whatever. But yeah, from working with, you know, top coaches to players, working very closely with them and to preserve sort of confidentiality and stuff, I I won't name other names other than Bill because. That was a lot of in the trenches work of just talking to people on the phone, literally going over their homes, setting up sleep sensors, literally looking at their data every single night, talking to them about how to improve, what it means. Um, so yeah, that was... I was going to see if I could get step. you to slip up and give me like a name of like a famous person, famous athlete, like who took sleep really seriously. But uh, maybe, maybe I mean, we can say that. It, 
I'll, like I'll just say, I mean, Alabama was a program that we worked with, uh, same thing with Clemson and, you know, Nick Saban was, is an old school guy. Uh, and we would talk, we would work with a lot of other programs that are like, okay, if Alabama does this, then we'll consider this. And that was a pretty common trope. And then Alabama started doing it and they take it very seriously. Like it's the science is there. It's not something to mess around with. And, but by the way, when we first got into this, it was like, we were like the nerdy engineering kids at Northwestern sort of doing this on our own with the football team. And we started getting all these calls um, and it was very weird. It, it was very, like, <laughs> a lot of the teams, it was still like this weird thing called sleep. And you know now it's much, much more normalized and people are talking about it. But yeah, I mean, there are times when we, we would definitely like, people would be like, what, sleep? Like, we're yeah, really you're, like, you're, you're, sleep, the, you're the Billy Bean of, of sleep. Basically, in some way, yeah, in some ways, but so yeah, but it was it was fun and um, got to learn a lot just about sports performance and got to learn a lot about human physiology and work with some great people on the performance side and um, I mean just awesome experience and just the the discipline, the work ethic, the the mental performance that goes into high performance sport too has just been a, was amazing to watch from the sidelines. So. Uh, very what? grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. So one of the other questions about about sleep is, uh, you mentioned your immune system and the cold, and and currently while we're recording this, right, it's COVID is is uh, blowing up again, right? It's it's at its highest ever. Has there been any? I mean, I'm I know it's so early on in terms of this disease, but like, has there been any science around how sleep can impact uh, COVID? Whether like you can maybe reduce transmission or getting it yourself or or what. Has there been any data around COVID and sleep yet? Yeah, so I'm not as up to date as I should be on that. I think I was actually listening to a Matt Walker podcast uh, with Peter Tia. And I think he mentioned that there was some early data being published, but you know that that'll probably take some time. So in terms of like you know looking back, is there data already published that's really good and solid? I don't know yet. Um, but in terms of just first principle thinking, it would be absurd if sleep didn't have an impact on COVID. Uh, And the reason why is that if you look at just how the immune system functions, then you look at the sleep research, um, there's a direct causal connection. This isn't correlational stuff. This isn't like, this is like hardcore. Like we know exactly the causal mechanisms that are changing in the immune system and how the immune system responds to any sort of immune uh, event. And so uh, in that case, like, again, do we have the data? Not yet. So I might be overstepping my boundaries here. But from first principles, like this is fundamentally affecting how your immune system responds. Mm -hmm. So it would be in the world of of interventions, like, yes, wash hands. uh, Yes, wear a face mask. You know, yes, socially distance. But like sleep, the fact that it's not being mentioned from the CDC, in my opinion, is appalling given how strong of an impact it has on the immune system. Now, is that going to be like the cure-all for COVID? No, but I think we should be attacking it from as many angles as we can. And sleep is something that we all have control over and should be prioritizing, especially now. Yeah. I mean, that makes absolute sense to me. And in your history of sleep, we were talking about circadian rhythms and, and how your body has this naturally. This is more of a fun question. Are you against Daylight savings time? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I sort of take a more of a data approach to it. There's some research that looks at what happens like car accidents and heart attacks. Heart attacks, yeah. Uh, with daylight savings times. Um, and those things like spike and then they come back down and we fall back. 
just from that alone, I would say like, let's get rid of it. Why are we causing human suffering from that? Um, so, so from that perspective, I, I would, I would probably yeah. get rid okay. of it. Okay. Fair enough. But yeah. And, 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 you know, with the, with timing, it's always fun because there's sort of the, our internal biological timing that our circadian rhythm is keeping track of through various mechanisms. But then there's the social timing. Like what happens if your, you know, biological time tells you you're in a peak, but that peak is until 1030 at night which is totally legit and going till 1am. Like that's totally normal for some people, but yet our social clock, like doing work at 1030 at night to one, like that's so bizarre. Most people it's like, well, nine to five, like that's when people are awake and working. So you, you just have to fit your bio- biology into that. But for a lot of people, it just, that doesn't work. Um, and so there are definitely ways you can shift that your internal, your biological time to meet the social standards we have. But for those of you that are listening that, feel like, yeah, your time, your internal time doesn't match the world. That's okay. You're, you're not uh, alone. And, and, um, and definitely there are ways that you can shift that. And, you know, but I think it's a lot of people will go their entire life, especially night hours, thinking that they're lazy, thinking that they're just not productive people, thinking that there, there's something wrong with them for not being a morning person and being this sort of go-getter. And I think it's a totally bunk. I mean, it, they've been felt that way because of, I think, how other people perceive them. But um, it's, you know, it's a biological thing. This is not, this is just like height. Like I'm a little over five, six. Like I didn't have any control over that. I happen to just be born that way. And so is, so same thing with whether you're a night owl or a morning person. So can you, you change know. if you're a night owl morning person though? Like, can you shift so, yeah, your, your so rhythms you're, though? Like if I'm like, oh man, I really would love to become a night owl or a morning person. Yeah. Right? So that you can do. So yes, yeah, sort of unlike height, you can actually have a pretty big impact on changing your rhythms. But yes, you can. And the two main ways to do it are uh, changing up when you get light and, uh, and changing when you get melatonin. And so actually, if you go to a sleep, uh, a uh, you know, behavioral sleep medicine specialist, or you go to a sleep scientist and, and you ask them about melatonin, there isn't a, a behavioral sleep medicine specialist I know that would say, go take melatonin to help you sleep at night. That's not how it's prescribed. It is prescribed for circadian rhythm, basically delays or advances. So there's very specific formulas that based on your sleep schedule, based on when you take melatonin, it will either make you a more of a morning person or make you more of a night person. And what that means specifically, just for everyone listening, because I know that can be kind of vague, is biologically the marker for whether or not you're a morning or late person is that if you're under dim light, so you're in a room, very dim light, let's say candlelight maybe is the most, so very, very dim light. And we um, basically take a saliva sample uh, at, at specific time intervals. The, what we're looking for is when is your brain naturally releasing that melatonin and we can pick it up in your saliva and that's that moment when we start to get melatonin in your saliva is basically the, the marker of how late or early you are. So there's some people where, that, where if you do that at seven o'clock, they're getting melatonin. There's some people, if you do that at 3 a.m., they're only getting melatonin. So uh, it's a huge range. It can actually range almost up to eight hours between people. So massive change there. But yeah, by taking melatonin, a pill of melatonin at different times, you can actually change your body's natural release of it. So it, it can, it, melatonin can sh- help me shift, but it doesn't help 100%. me sleep. Correct. Yeah. If you look at the, if you look at the sort of peer reviewed uh, papers on melatonin administration, you'll see that it has no effect on total sleep time or wake after sleep onset or any other the variables that you would look at. Um, 
And it makes makes sense. And it's also not it's not effective as a shifting agent taking it right before you go to sleep anyway for other reasons. So yeah, but it, for some reason it gets prescribed. But I think the first time I heard melatonin was like a friend of my mom's who's a psychiatrist was like my brother had issues falling asleep. And like, that's how we first heard about melatonin. And it was like, yeah, take this before going to take like three milligrams before going to bed. It's like, what? Why? What's the evidence behind that? There's no evidence that one should be doing that. Not to say that if you are taking it and it's part of your routine and you like it, that you should stop. There's also not a, not evidence that there's evidence that suggests that uh, at least of the side effects that we can try and study, there aren't many. It's it's a hormone that your brain's naturally producing. But again, I would just be cautious about putting something into the body that if you don't need it, why take it? And and I would try and do everything we you you could to make sure that the natural release of melatonin that you're having is effective and is coming out as it, you know, was initially designed. Whenever I tried melatonin, I tried it, you know, in the past and I feel like I'm just groggy in the next morning and more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Some people will feel a little bit grogginess in the morning. Um, but yeah, when I take it, I'm going to be shifting for, you know, because I'm flying international or something, there's actually like, I'll set up my melatonin schedule and we'll be taking it to shift my rhythm before I go there. So that basically by the time hey, I'm in Berlin, do you have like a blog about that? Like traveling through time zones and going to Europe tomorrow or, you know, whatever, two weeks from now, what should I start doing today to prep myself? We should have that. Yeah. It's definitely something. And there, we, we see a lot of people too, that are night owls that are struggling. Right. And they're like feeling like they're not productive and maybe they think they have ADD. And then all of a sudden we tell them, no, you're just, you're a late person. Your melatonin release is really late. You should be working and, and waking up at these different times. Um, and it's not anything wrong with you. And oftentimes they're interested in saying, well, how do I become more of a morning person? Um, and shifting it earlier. And so there's definitely a need for for that. Um, yeah. I'm the asshole that gives un, unsolicited product advice. So uh, there you go. Uh, okay. I'll take so, it. We've been talking for a while. This is awesome. I told everyone that Jeff knows about sleep. He clearly does. I want to get into the, the business of sleep and the business of Rise. So uh, started out as like a services firm, right? Uh, prescribing and working with elite athletes. And now that's taking the form of a consumer app that anyone can go download on the on the iOS or are you guys on Android? We are, but we it's not up to date. Okay. So, so if you're on Android, store. you can check it out, but it is not not representative of what's on iOS. Unfortunately, it's just you know in there terms of the priority list. We feel bad about leaving out all the Android people, but we'll get there. Okay. So <laughs> iOS app, you can download it. So are you guys? Is this a consumer business? Uh, I know you've gone through some different iterations of testing with even working with like massive sales teams who quantify everything. So like, how are you going to apply this to like creating a venture backable business, which is what ultimately your your goal is? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the goal and vision is there's just this week, there will be 750 million people in the developed world that are just like tired multiple days a week. And they're going to be treating themselves with caffeine and and energy drinks and meditating and, you know, trying to do productivity workshops and buying sleep trackers. And I mean, it's just insanity what, what's out there, but like, that's what's happening. And so for us, it's like, how can we tie that, that need of tiredness, what we're doing? And so our hack is that if we can do it in the short term, and this is where I'll say hack, but if we can sort of hack the brain to give immediate feedback about how sleep is affecting their energy, what we're seeing is that people are in our peer reviewed research is that people are sleeping a lot more. They're getting a lot more sleep and it's sustaining over a long period of time. And so what is that also going to do? And sort of why we got into this is that like everything else about your life is also going to get better. You're going to live longer. You're going to have better quality of life. I mean, it's the most important thing you can do. And so 
if you're trying to improve any aspect of how you're functioning, like the place to start is sleep. And I was actually having an interesting conversation with a um, executive coach and her backgrounds in, uh, in psychology. I think she has a big podcast. Maybe I'll have her on our, our, our podcast at some point, but she was just awesome. And one of the things she said to me that I was just fascinated with, she said, Jeff, yes, I have a background in clinical psychology. I work with like all these top CEOs and executives and they're coming to me. They want productivity advice. They want advice on how to become a better executive. She said, I don't talk to them about any of that. I don't do any therapy. I don't do any executive coaching until they get their sleep right. Once they get their sleep right and make sure they're eating well and make sure they're moving. And like that, that's where we start. Like until we get those blocks done, I don't even talk about the other things because I don't actually know who the person is until those basic things are done. And she said, those move the needle so much. She's like, she's like, often like people are super frustrated and, and, and pissed at me, but that's where I start. And so I would also encourage anyone here to like take that advice yourself and start there if you're trying to get better, like just like move a little bit during the week, make sure you're eating reasonably well. But I would bias, but I think the data is on our side to say like, start with sleep and just nail that. Then start to focus. I mean, eat, just even on the, on the eating side, give you another example. If you go from basically seven hours of sleep to eight hours of sleep for a week, it, it's, it's going to reduce your glucose metabolism by 20 to 30%, which is similar to someone that would have type two diabetes. So like it's having a massive impact on your metabolism as well. And, you know, so why are you spending all this time eating all this great food from wherever your favorite farm to table place is that you're excited about if your body just can't even metabolize it properly? Yeah. So again, like sleep is the fact, like you got to start there, then work in physical activity and, and nutrition. And you can work in, you know, mindfulness on top of that. But, um, but anyway, so that's off my soapbox for a second. Um, the vision is like, how do we build a sustainable economic engine that powers what we're doing to those people that have Android and iOS, we got to get Android fixed uh, and, and, and up to speed. But there's just also so much to do on the what we're doing right now in the app experience. I mean, we're just kind of like scratching the surface, but that's where we want to go. And so then the question is, okay, knowing we want to go there, is venture the right form of financing to get there? Or is bootstrapping or is basically self-financing it? And so I think venture gets a bad rap, but like, ultimately, if you look, you know, just sort of like basic portfolio theory, I shouldn't be like, you know, 90% or hundred percent of like my net worth into my company. Like that's just not a good decision to make with venture capital. It makes a ton of sense. Their portfolios, you're exporting risk in the right way. And so when I look at that and I look at the scale of the opportunity, it's like, yeah, venture is the clear path, at least for a business like ours that, that has a chance to get to real scale. Um, it wasn't for the elite athletic business, in my opinion. Um, and I, we, you know, have this longer term vision. The focus right now is like just focusing on the most important thing. And with a small team, you have to be laser focused. And for us, it's, you know, how do we make the product as good as we possibly can? We need to know every step in our funnel. We need to know every part where people are dropping off every issue. And then we need to just methodically prioritize and solve. And so that's kind of core focus of the business. And yes, making money is important and you have to think about growing as well, but ultimately you have to have a product that works incredibly well and just credit, I would say to our board and just got fortunate with, with our board members that also believe in that, that like you have to get the product right. You can't, you know, growing for growth's sake with a single player experience. Maybe if you have a network effects business where it's just like Facebook, where it's full network effects, you need to grow, grow, grow. But it, it, you need to be really thoughtful about both of those things together. So that's sort of where we're at is 
really making sure the balance between growth and, and, and product are are together and just being super So, so is, there, is that a balance right now? So it sounds like you've got the board aligned on this vision of we are going to nail, absolutely nail the, the end user experience at the single player. Uh, we can't go sell a million dollar contract, SaaS contract to XYZ, you know, Fortune 500. And we use customer success people in the background to duct tape where the product is lacking or what have you. Uh, so you align the board behind that that vision. Is there expectations for like growth at some point? Yeah, I mean, yes, there has to be at some point. And it depends how long we, you, you take. And I think there's a great book on this that has influenced a lot of my thinking on this topic of like, how do you maneuver these levers? And it's a book called Traction by the founder of DuckDuckGo. And it's literally just like awesome. As someone who doesn't come from traditional marketing background, he basically is like, look, here's like the 17 marketing channels of how to reach customers that like any business has gotten to scale has used one of these 17. And like, here's just a very practical framework for going and attacking that. And like, I would coach like anyone that comes to me with like a growth or acquisition question. It's like, start there. It's just so useful to get going. So and one of the things, one of the insights in the book that I think is also true is like, you can't just work on product in a vacuum, you know? So like, meanwhile, while we're iterating on product, it's not like we're just like spending months and months. I mean, we've published at this point, like thousands of iterations to the app. Most of them are on probably parts of the funnel you haven't seen or like parts of different experiences that maybe you, you might not see as a user. But we've had so many different iterations. That basically what we do is, and I, this is whether you're building a B2B business or you're making money with consumer, we would have a little budget set aside, let's call it 5K a month on Instagram and Facebook ads. Just, and this isn't novel, but just to drive people through our funnel. And then what we're yeah. doing is looking at cohorted retention. And so we're looking at like, okay, the cohort we brought in between these two weeks. Okay, we're, let's, let's assume if our biggest problem, let's say was day one retention, like that's the thing we're trying to solve. We would then take, you know, a couple hundred people through that, look at their day one retention, say, wow, it didn't improve from the last cohort, pay them, give them Amazon gift cards, get on the phone and be like, look, what, okay, so you know, why did you buy this? And do really deep qualitative research, having the quantitative, the quantitative just helps set up the problem. But then deep qualitative research to say like, what were we missing and, and learn that from them? What was their job? What was the progress that they were hoping to get by downloading this? And through that, we started to just build tons of insights and start to be able to quickly iterate to figure out you know, how to improve these things. But like give you, you know, an idea, we've improved our install to subscriber activation rate, and this is hopefully just hope for everyone that's out there, over 10x from, from when we started. So I think some people are like, iteration can't do that, but it can. And it's just about really understanding the customer. And, and that's something that we take very, very Well, it seriously. sounds like there's a lot of rigor. I mean, 10x, a lot of, I mean, it sounds like you had some pretty rigor with, with measuring and, and getting oh, 100%. Of that. So yeah. what was the biggest insight? Actually, you got to 10x. Was it a lot of small little things? Or you know, you get onto a customer, you give them a, you're talking because they are jumping on because they want to get the Amazon gift card. Has there any been has there been like an, an aha, like, oh, that for for Rise, that that was one big step jump from Yeah. Was there anything like so that you, was mine? A hundred percent. Yeah. So if you look at um, another big thing that influenced our thought is Rahul, it's superhuman on the product market fit process. And he mm -hmm. took Sean Ellis's sort of like VD survey and used that as the KPI. We use that as our KPI until we hit 40%. And then at that point, it's like, well, that's probably not the KPI that we want to be measuring now. Like, let's look at cohort retention. Let's look at revenue retention. Let's look at kind of other more in-depth metrics. What was the name of that metric? But Sorry, I'm running that down. 
So the very, have you heard the very disappointed metric? Oh yeah. How, how disappointed would you be if this rise? Yeah, if you no longer had access to this, how, how disappointed would you be? And you want to be able to hit 40%. Like until you get to 40%, he's like, the issue is you're just not going to have enough uh, retention. It's, that is a predictor of ultimately long-term retention. So are people coming back and using the product Mm -hmm. regularly? And it's a predictor of word of mouth, basically, like how much people love it. And so if that's just not at 40%, let's say you're at, I think when we started iterating on this, we were at like 5% for the longest time. And that was the main KPI we were looking at. And um, and so it, it, I think where the breakthrough for us, and this will be sort of not prescriptive, but general enough that I think it can be useful to anyone listening to this, was if you read the superhuman posts, what what their big unlock was that if they just built superhuman for everyone, their numbers are not good. Like they don't have... Good. They don't have product market fit if they're marketing this to just anyone that's using email. But they found that like basically the persona that that had really high, very disappointed rates were basically people like founders, venture capitalists, like people on their email. I think more than like five hours a day or something. And so what was really their unique insight was like, okay, that's now the customer group that that we need to focus on, and those are the people that we actually care about. Everyone else, we don't really care about. And so think about sleep. For us, the hardest challenge was who are we actually building this for? When we were working with pro athletes, we knew who it was exactly. Like I knew literally, I knew every single one of their names, and like I know that like we get all those people in a room. Um, but in the consumer world, where now we're building it for lots of people, how do we do that? So you have to be really thoughtful about where you put time and energy. And so one of the things that we just got super good at, and credit to to Odie and and Jason who who led the product efforts on this is they just did an amazing job of being super rigorous with how we do qualitative research. We probably have like, I don't know, six, 700 qualitative interviews now uh-huh. that are all recorded. We still do five to 10 a week. It's just how we get our inspiration. And um, and so what we figured out, but it took a long, it probably took us, it took us too long. If there's one area we could go back and change this to be one of the areas, but basically um, finding out who we're actually building for but not you, you know, superhuman was like, it's like a job title. And maybe that works if you're building like a sort of true yeah. like utility for B2B SaaS, but it didn't work for us. And we had to use more of a jobs to be done for bottoms up framework. And I'll just sort of give the high level takeaway of how we did this, which is um, we would basically, you know, take people through the cohort. We would look at the people that immediately dropped off try and get them on the phone and figure out why. And the, the simple question we would try and use and intercom has a great uh, sort of interview guide for jobs to be done framework. But we were trying to understand like what, what progress is this person trying to make in their life? And at what moment did they think that that rise would help them make progress there? And so then what we did is after doing hundreds of these qualitative interviews, I mean, even after the first 50, it wasn't clear. Even after the first 100, it actually wasn't yet clear. Then we started to realize, oh, there's like eight of basically these jobs to be done as we got better at that, then it's actually part of our, our flow. So if you look in our signup flow today, you'll actually, we'll ask you like, hey, why are you here? Like, what are you trying to solve by, by using this? And we know what those eight things are now. We're refining them over time. But now we can actually map our trial conversion, our trial retention, our top of funnel acquisition, all to those jobs. And it's very different if you're trying to acquire or build a product for a user that, you know, for example, is trying to solve their sleep issues, which is one of the things you can click, versus... Uh, someone who's trying to improve their productivity during the day. Like 
Think about what your ad is going to say, what your messaging is going to say, how what features you decide to focus on. Do Should we be building something that helps people with insomnia and sleep stories, or should we be focused on how to apply circadian rhythm to your calendaring to make your day much easier? So the limited time and resources, you only have so many swings. And so it was that process of getting to those core jobs and then starting to figure out strategically which jobs we felt were underserved and where we felt as a company we had the most insight and most capability to solve. So that was sort of the the dance. And it just took us a while to figure that out. I mean, you you know, now I'd be able to go and figure it out much faster having been through this process. Yeah. But so those there's eight things in the sign up flow. Uh, I guess two questions from that. Are you dictating later steps in the flow based on the answer to that? And and what have you seen from those eight things? Like that's ultimately what you want to measure, right? So I mean, at first it was just like, okay, we we know that these are the eight things. We know these are the eight jobs based on all the qualitative research. Let's put it up there. And then also we're constantly iterating through that of like, you know what, that isn't actually specific enough. Let's change the wording of it. So I mean, we're just refining now. It's truly like tweaking those things. But um, then after we started to get a lot of data of like, whoa, people that you know are trying to solve their sleep issues. I mean, it's clear, we actually it's not a focus of ours. Um, we don't solve that job particularly well, in my opinion. Um, or someone, that, for example, wants to track their sleep. Like that's just like all they're trying to do. Like we don't necessarily do a great job of that either. We're not really a sleep tracker. So those sorts of things, or someone who's trying to optimize fitness, we also don't do a great job of that. It's not a big focus of ours. Yeah. Um, Whoop does an amazing job of that. Like that's a tool you should use. You know, if you're trying to optimize fitness, there's definitely ways that we can help, but it's just not not what we're focused on. And so we can see in our funnels that those don't convert as well. And so not only is that informing our product strategy, but yeah, we're able to say, you know, if someone says, hey, I want to optimize fitness, we've done things like tailored onboarding series, tailoring content to help people kind of get through the common barriers that we know that that person has. So we sort of think about with each of those jobs, what's the customer journey from, you know, awareness all the way to, to taking yeah. action and making sure we're trying to design the experience uh, uh, thoroughly there. So the attention and, to detail yeah. you guys have is is incredible. I love, I don't want to pump your tires at all, but here it goes. Like, I, I just love, you know, it's a great developer, by the way, when Apple announces something uh, at their like summer developer conference and then a developer like is using it right away. So like widget, for example, I love. Like, yeah, widget was big for us. The widget's yeah, cool. Widget I love using it. It's like, enabled. it's right there. And even like at night when my melatonin's kicking in, it's got like the little stars and the moon, like that stuff is just, I love that small little attention to detail. You guys certainly have it. Uh, okay, so this has been awesome. Uh, we said 20 minute podcast recording and it's been a little over an hour. I do want to talk about like founder wellness actually. And because okay. we, we talked about it, you mentioned, you hinted at that. Um, it's something I feel personally. So, you know, Visible has been distributed since we started the company. We have people in Europe. And so, and once I moved to the West Coast uh, more recently, that means I'm waking up early. And I find it really hard to be a great leader at 7 a.m. on a team call on a Monday morning uh, because it's, yeah. just, it's just early. <laughs> like, uh, I guess, like, yeah, I would love to talk about, like, founders and sleep and just, I don't know, anything, like any thoughts you have, especially with like, I guess, wellness and, and leadership, right? Like how, how do I take and, and think about sleep in the context of uh, being inspirational and being a great leader and being there for my team? 
don't even know if that was a question. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, no, it is. So I would say first off, like we drink our own Kool-Aid. Like I, I was not feeling good yesterday. I had more sleep debt than I've had in probably two weeks. I had six and a half hours of sleep debt, which actually is pretty, pretty decent. And I was just feeling more anxious than usual. No particular. And I just like, I remember getting home and I told Candace, my wife, I was just like, I, I, today was just like not a good day. There was nothing that went wrong with it. I just, you know, I woke up, I meditated. I, it just wasn't a great day. Um, and my sleep debt was higher. And I also, one of the things I do uh, before work is I go on a run for both the physical exercise, but to also beat the morning grogginess. And then second for circadian health reasons, which we can talk about maybe on the next podcast. Um, <laughs> but but I found that that for me, um, sleep and getting exercise in the morning really matter. And so, you know, the philosophy that 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 I have is just it starts with your own person. And like our number one sort of uh, most deeply held like behavior at Rise, not even value, is like we just take people's well-being and that and them coming to work as their full selves. Like that is the number one thing that we care about. That's our belief in terms of how we're going to get outcomes long term. But we're people first, not outcomes first. And so, you know, that's where we're really focused on. And I try and mirror that. When my daughter was born 18 months ago. I started going to therapy. Just I wanted to make sure that like I was, you know, if I was off the rails, I could catch something early. I could. So it's definitely something I've been focused on. And I just think that this job is so hard. I'm, it's not like every day I'm still having like good days. I still feel a lot of anxiety. I still feel a lot of pressure. I still feel a lot of stress. And a lot of that's a huge privilege, by the way, to be working on a problem I care about with a team I care about, you know, solving a problem that, that obviously I, I, I care deeply about. And so it's a privilege, but that doesn't mean that it's not hard. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about. And I, I remember reading uh, Radical Candor, And the whole book, I felt like it was maybe too long-winded, but like, I think this was in the appendix. I came across this nugget and Kim Scott basically says, to be a good leader, you basically have to lead yourself first. And she's like, to do that, I have a very rigorous detailed plan of what I need to do to be good. And she's like, for me, it's basically sleep, uh, going on vacation with some regular cadence, working out basically five out of every other day, basically. She's like, I know that even if things in my life are good, and I don't do those things, I'm going to be off the rails. And so I just think it's so important when you're a leader and you're running a company that, you know, not that every day is going to be perfect for sure. And, you know, to be open about how you're feeling. And um, I'm thankful to be part of a team where I can just be be that and be myself uh, on good days and bad days. But I do think that it's an important responsibility to take care of yourself. And in many ways, like it's not, you know, uh, I, I, I just, I mean, business stuff aside, life is short. We have a limited amount of time on the planet. And that means that we should be super intentional about how we're spending our time and that we should be focused on getting enjoyment out of it. And I just, I, I think the first couple of years of Rise, it was really a lesson in, you know, the 16 hour days, the 18 hour days. And not that sometimes you don't need to do that stuff, but it's just, it, it takes a really big toll and it's, it's just not ideal you know, and, and so why put yourself through that? Why put your team through that? Why set that example? Um, and it's just not, it's, it's really suboptimal. I mean, you're really killing yourself and cutting your life short. And so I just, anyway, I, I it's something that I think everyone yeah. should be focused on. I think it's top priority. I, I sort of am a big believer, even though it's cliche in this concept, you know, put your own oxygen mask on. 
But like when you lose your health or you're burnt out, there's just no way you can be a decent leader. Um, There's no way you can be a bad leader. Like you're just, you can't even lead at all if you don't have your health. But then if you're like pulling all-nighters and not taking care of yourself, then you're probably a bad leader. And like that, who wants to be around that? So um, I think life's too short for, for bad leadership and just for treating others poorly and treating yourself poorly. And a lot of times it comes from you're not taking care of yourself. One of the things we talk about at Visible is harmony uh, in, in life and in what you bring to to work. Like we don't believe in work-life balance. There's just life, right? Yeah. And and work yeah. is certainly part of that. I came across an article from First Round the other day that I loved about talking about management and and things. It was like six takeaways of like you wouldn't think of, of, of leadership or whatever. And one of them was like, don't create a second patient, which basically the, the gist of that was, uh, you know, take care of number one yourself before you can take care of of others, uh, which I, I just totally believe in. Um, yeah, so, cool. yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. So some some questions we just ask everyone. We're trying this out to see if we can create something interesting from this. But you talked quite a bit about this, and so let me know if there's anything we're missing. But like things you do personally to stay, you know, sane, manage your own psyche as a founder. It sounds like, I mean, we talked about cooking. Uh, we talked, it sounds like you meditate in the morning, you work out, clearly sleep. Uh, is there anything else you do like that manages your own personal psyche uh, as, a, yeah. as a founder? Yeah, totally. So yeah, the things I do probably in stack ranked order of importance. Um, I'm just going to toot my own horn here. And say uh, you can't say sleep. Like, <laughs> I have to say sleep. No, but like yeah, yeah, all, yeah. All, yeah, so sleep, we've already talked about that, belabored that point. Um, the next thing is definitely, I've just found getting out in the morning into some sort of sunlight, even if it's an overcast day, even if it's 25 degrees in Chicago, getting out in sunlight is essential for my circadian health, my sleep that night. And, and, you know, I won't go into all the details, but that is a critical moment. Those first, you know, 30, 45 minutes of your day, getting out and getting sunlight is very, very important for your circadian rhythm to function properly. Uh, and, and strongly. And so not only does it help me sleep better at night and there's this nice feedback loop, but just getting out and sweating makes just, I've just noticed has a big change on my mood and how I feel. So that's something that also I, I don't mess with. And I try and do that, you know, I'll even delay meetings. Like that's just something that I don't move. Um, I'd say the third thing I do just at night, that's very regular for me. Um, is taking a hot shower. So it has nothing to do with like being clean. It has everything to do with just the thermoregulation. So there is some pretty decent uh, peer-reviewed data out there on taking a hot shower and it reducing basically the time it takes to fall asleep and and also reducing waking up. Um, and so, so you're team hot shower, not team cold shower. There's like cold shower people out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm team hot shower at night about an hour before with, I light a candle. So like, I literally go into my bathroom, I turn off all the lights in my house. I wear these orange glasses that is a whole other thing, (laughs) but blocking out all blue light. And then I light a candle uh, in the bathroom and then I have one candle and then I'm taking a really hot shower for like 10 to 15 minutes. That's a great scene just to think about in my own head. Yeah, it's just, it's awesome. Uh, It's really awesome. So that's the third thing. I'd say fourth thing is uh, therapy has been useful for me. Um, it was very, very useful when my daughter, Clara was born. Just, I didn't even realize how, how poorly I was doing when mm-hmm. I started therapy until like I went to a couple sessions and I wasn't doing well. 
Um, but I would encourage if it's easy for you just to, for, for folks to give that a try, it can be a useful outlet. I don't think it'll be an overnight cure, but it's something I found um, useful and as part of a sort of regimen. Um, and I mean, those are the main thing I try. The other thing I do also religiously and, and has some religious undertones is I'm off technology basically Friday night through Saturday. So I don't do any work. I'm not doing anything mm. like zero work related stuff. And I'm just with Candace and my daughter, uh, Clara, and we're just together. Like it's, that's our time. And then Saturday night when the sun goes down, yeah, I'll fire up, check email, make sure Slack's fine. And Sunday I try and carve out time for work too. But I, that, I would say the other thing I try and do that I'm intentional about is t- tracking my time and where my time actually goes. Mm-hmm. So what I've seen over time is um, I basically organize my day into sort of categories. Like let's say I'm working on a fundraise or I'm working on something on B2B or product or consumer or HR, or whatever it happens to be, sort of have these different categories. And every time I start a new task, I track that and track the category. Uh, and what I've found, there's sort of two useful learnings. One is it really helps me make sure like my priorities are straight. Like what's the problem to solve and do I need to be, and, and like, I'm, I don't like doing a ton of task switching. So I just want to be like focused on fundraising. So like all my time will be there. And then I look back the week when I start my week and I want to see like, did most of my time go to fundraising or not? If it didn't, I need to change something. If it did, Cool. The are you doing that programmatically? Thing, is that like a Google calendar? And it's not. No, it's not. I, I use a tool called Toggle. Okay. And then I actually have it set up to Slack through a Zap that then updates my status in Slack saying like Jeff's working on, you know, like right now I would say like Jeff's working with, you know, Mike on a podcast and it would be like my Slack status. So <laughs> okay. that way too, my team kind of knows what I'm working on. Yeah, but, I love it. Um, but yeah, so that's that's on that. And then I'd say the 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 other piece that maybe is counterintuitive for people is, I, I track the, because I'm tracking the tasks, I now have a recollection of how much time I'm actually focused doing work. So not like how much time I'm at work, sort of like just at their button seat, but like how much time am I actually like focused doing something? And what I found is if I'm under about 37 hours, I feel like I'm behind uh, in terms of what I needed to get done. Yeah. If I'm above 45 I know there's something off with my prioritization. And usually there's like, obviously like travel and commute. It's like, by the time you're all set and done with a 45 hour actually focused work week, you know, that can push up into the mid fifties, but like, that's usually not a good sign. And so I use that to also say like, my commitment is to put in 40 hours of focused work every seven days. So again, like that's 40 hours of focused work, 40 hours of focused work every seven days. So it doesn't, I like, I, cause I don't get, you know, we don't, I don't move the company forward if it's unfocused work and it's like me checking Slack for seven hours of the 40 hours. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I'm focused on solving problems for 40 hours, like that should be enough to move the company forward. And if it's not like, there's usually something larger, more systemic, I'm not working smart enough. So I'd say that's another, that has been a big unlock for me, especially when, when I'm at managing a lot more sort of projects and, and, and work, I found that that's a super useful strategy. You're the second person that uh, has some sort of bathing ritual every night that we've talked to. We talked That's to Amanda awesome. Getz. Uh, she was the VP of marketing at The Knot and, and is starting her own company now. We were talking to her about that journey. And she takes commute baths. Uh, we talked about that last week. Since the commute is now <laughs> gone, taking a oh, commute yeah. bath uh, and listening to podcasts. So uh, awesome. there's a theme emerging from these questions. Uh, okay. And... 
last thing is is talking about thanks. So Monday, uh, when we do Visible's team call, we give thanks to uh, someone on the team or, or somebody just for something they did for, for the week before for us. Is there anyone that you have or maybe haven't uh, given thanks to that you would like to, to give a thanks to right now? Yeah, I mean, it, this is another hack I've learned. This is truly something that feels like a hack, but it just works so well, is when I'm feeling anxious or feeling all down or feeling not myself, or going to a big meeting, spending a minute to like write someone a quick thank you email that's helped you. And for me, that list is like too large, you know, it's like too large to even list. So I'm not going to name anyone in particular. I'll sort of skirt the question a bit, but like, I mean, I'm super grateful for my whole team, uh, super grateful for my family, uh, including my wife, obviously the joy that my daughter brings me, my, my immediate family, my in-laws, like those people really bring me a lot of energy and support me my whole sort of extended rise community of like, there's literally so many people that I just on the, on just today before this, I was on the phone with two people that I just reached out to and said, I need help getting smarter about X. And they got on the phone amidst their busy days and helped me. And like, that's like last week, there were probably eight of those, you know, like, so it's just, I just feel so grateful to have gotten to a place where, um, you know, there's people that are willing to help and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I mean, that just feels really good. And even amidst COVID, uh, those I love, I love small that. interactions have been amazing. I love that call to action or, or takeaway of before a big meeting or feeling anxious and just writing me out. That's awesome. That's going to be like a, an audiogram we're going to just send out to the audience. That's, that's an awesome one. Uh, okay, so Jeff, last question. I'm going to be a father soon. You've, you've been a father. I'm an emerging how, father. How is sleep... Uh, like, am I screwed? Like, what have you learned? Like, what are best practices for sleep with a newborn? Or are there any? All the rules are out the window. Yeah, all I'm going to do is just set expectations. And then I think that's maybe also another podcast. Whole deep topic went very <laughs> deep down the rabbit hole and, you know, newborn sleep science. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. The first, for sure, the first six weeks, like the, the sleep biology, just as all the body part, all, all the body systems and organ systems of your uh, baby are developing, so is their sleep system. So like their circadian, their sleep is not fragment, is not consolidated. Their circadian rhythm is still developing. So what that means, and here's just what I'll, this gave me the clearest understanding of how hard it is to be a parent. People are like, oh, it's so hard, like blah, blah, blah. I didn't know what they meant. And then when I went through it myself, I was like, oh, this is why it's so hard. So here's... It's not really an insight, but it's just more of a description. Basically, you've got 24 hours in a day. When you have a newborn, they uh, basically are feeding every two hours, roughly speaking, and they'll feed somewhere between six to eight times a day, and then sort of sleeping also at random intervals. And so just adding that up, and like a feed, by the way, can take about from like the prep time to cleaning the bottles, doing all this sort of stuff, a feed can take an hour, hour and a half, two hours sometimes. By the time you feed, clean up from the feed, get get them back sleeping again, like it can be a long haul. So like, let's just say two hours times eight feeds a day is 16 hours of manual work. So you're going to, you, what you've signed up for, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, is 16 <laughs> hours of manual work that is randomly interspersed throughout a 24-hour period. So it's not like it's predictable, like every two hours, all right, we're good to go. It's like random and you're doing that six to eight times a day. For, for, you know, usually it doesn't start to like turn the corner, I'd say until like week six to, to, to 10, 
The yeah. sleep system starts consolidating, circadian rhythm starts consolidating. So I'd say just be ready for um, be ready for it. I, I was actually talking with Manny Medina last week from Outreach and uh, the founder and CEO there. And Manny, uh, I think it was his first kid. Outreach was a couple of years old as a company. They now offer an $8,500 stipend for a night nurse for anyone that's having kids at wow. their company. And like, cause he basically went through the first one and had the night nurse and he was feeling like horrible, got the night nurse, was able to sleep again. He's like, oh my God, I just feel like a new person. I'm actually able to enjoy being a new parent. And so he's like, I, this should be something that like, so he called his like head of HR at 6 a.m. And one morning it was like, we need to do this for everyone. Um, and and they've still do it to this day. So I, I had him on our podcast to talk about like what inspired that, but that's I mean, awesome. like $8,500 stipend to do that is pretty crazy. So. That is cool. Okay, last, last question. Because I wrote this down. I'm sorry. I wrote this down. I, I have to ask uh, because I think this is important. Can we talk about alcohol and caffeine and sleep? We can. Uh, here's the quick on it. Natural sleep is, again, what we're going for. If you put caffeine in your body, you put THC in your body, you put alcohol in your body, you no longer have natural sleep. So that's the high level. A bit more detailed about how to have those things responsibly so that you have as natural sleep as you can while still being able to enjoy yeah. know, caffeine and alcohol. Um, to enjoy caffeine, d- d- there's different sort of half-lifes and everyone actually has a different half-life. But basically there's a time when you drink your cup of coffee, your, your body's metabolizing all the caffeine out. But meanwhile, the caffeine's still swirling in your brain. And what it's doing chemically is basically tricking you into thinking you're not tired. It's blocking the feeling of tiredness at a, at a neuron level. And so what that means is if the coffee isn't cleared out by the time your head's to the pillow, you won't feel as tired and your body is not experiencing natural sleep. And so um, what we advise is to try and drink caffeine and stop drinking caffeine about 10 hours before your melatonin window. But roughly speaking, you know, obviously the earlier you cut it out, the better, but I would recommend having coffee in the morning because it can, you know, not everyone needs caffeine, but if you're feeling groggy in the morning, caffeine can be an awesome solve. Um, and so I love coffee. I make my cup in the morning and then I switch to decaf for pretty much the rest of the day. And I still love coffee, which is why I drink decaf. And there's some good decafs out there. So that's on coffee. On alcohol, similar sort of thing. Try to just avoid it, you know, two to three hours before going to sleep. It's I, I, it's funny. I see like online, everyone's like, yeah, I got the order ring and I love it. And it just told me that like my sleep gets messed up when I drink alcohol. And it's like this huge game changing insight. It's like, well, we've known that for a long time, <laughs> but cool that you now know that. Uh, and you spent $360 on a ring telling you that. But ultimately, yeah, it does affect your sleep. And if you can, you know, avoid uh, alcohol three to four hours and it'll it'll make a very big impact. Even like ha- just try like having a glass of wine an hour before sleep one night and just note your sleep and sort of how restless you feel. And then like, don't have wine the next night and see how you feel. I mean, I've been it, messing it, with, it has a- Yeah, I've been messing with that quite a bit. So- is it like any amount of alcohol? I mean, clearly there's like other things going to happen. Like yeah, you know, I mean, but like experiment. I, what yeah. people seem to think, uh, yeah, experiment. There's likely research on exact amount of alcohol, but and the clearance rate and all that. But um, for me personally, like yeah, if I have a drink about an hour and a half or two hours before bed, usually I don't have, I don't notice it. But once I get up into like the two or three drink range, like I definitely notice it. So um, I, I definitely most nights try to right when I get home, maybe have a, have a half a beer with my wife and I still get the enjoyment of, of having a beer. I really like, but I'm not having the whole beer and I'm doing it also, you know, early enough before sleep that doesn't have an impact. So 
that's how I try and sort of manage that into my schedule um, and how I manage the caffeine side into my schedule as well. There it is. Jeff, thanks for coming. Thanks for being on the show. I wrote so many takeaways down from sleep to fun hacks like toggle, which I'm going to go check out for kind of managing yep. your schedule. Uh, this is just so many notes in my, it looks like uh, a beautiful mind in my, in my notebook over here. So <laughs> thanks for, thanks for jumping on. Uh, appreciate your time. We'll talk to you soon. It's always great. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. See ya.